from Paul's letter to the Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Bet you're wondering where I'm going with this one, aren't you? Um, it's interesting. I've got, a, I've got a quick survey. How many of you have ever heard a sermon about government? Anybody? A sermon about government. Harrison has. Hey, Harrison. Uh, nobody else. He's, uh, he's one of our preschool students. Uh, no one in here, I bet, has heard a sermon about government. And that's likely because uh, for one of two reasons. First, our lectionary skips right over it. Uh, our lectionary actually, you know, we, uh, Father Chris has been preaching through Romans chapter 12 in the last couple of weeks, and then our lectionary picks up at verse 8, and it skips 1 through 7. And then there's a, there's a parallel text in 1 Peter chapter 2, and lectionary also happens to skip right over that section about submitting to governing authorities. Isn't that interesting? So, our lectionary skips over it, so it's not something we often talk about. And the second reason you might not hear about it is because there's this prevailing view in some churches and not here that, you know, churchy things should operate in this kind of spiritual sphere that's disconnected from the earthly sphere. You ever hear about this idea? It's called two kingdoms. You know, so it's like we've got the heavenly kingdom that just talks about spiritual things, and then the earthly kingdom that talks about money and government and practical things. You all follow me when I say that? Again, we don't abide by that here, and there's a couple reasons for that. Um, but the main reason is that God is sovereign over all of creation. His domain is over all of creation. And, you know, to, to sum it up in a really good quote, uh, theologian uh, Kuiper says this. He says, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine. And I want us to think about that for a second. The Bible has a lot to say about a lot of things. And it's necessary for us as Christians to have a uniquely Christian perspective that, that can address some of the, the crazy issues that we're facing today. Do you hear what I'm saying? You're going to be tempted to hear this sermon through the lens of, lens of a political party. Don't do that. Christianity transcends our political divisions. Do you hear, do you hear me on that? You have more loyalty to your Christian brother and sister, more allegiance to your Christian and brother or sister across political aisles than you do to a non-Christian within your political party. That's important for us to realize. We all on the same page? Good. Okay, so three points for today. One, God is sovereign, and government is instituted by God. Second point, God is sovereign. And his laws are higher than any government. And third point, God is sovereign, and in him alone do we place our hope. All right, let's dive in. Uh, I'm going to reread verses 1 and 2 briefly because they're so impactful. So if you've got your bulletin, you can look along with me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So you might be asking, what about tyrannical governments? What about the Nazis, right? I mean, that's kind of where we go in political discourse these days. What about, what about tyrannical governments? Well, I'll get there, okay? Hold on. That's point two. Point one is that, it, that God has instituted the structures of government for our good. 
And I want to I talk about that in the context of what Paul's going through. You see, what Paul's going, you know, history repeats itself. You ever hear that phrase? That's a common phrase. We're all still people. There's a lot of repetitive things. And so knowing Paul's history, his historical context is important. And in the Christians that Paul is talking to are largely split into two camps, and he's addressing them both with this one passage. You ready? We're going to make up names for them. The first one we'll call the liberty lovers. And then the second group we'll call the freedom fighters. Okay? So Paul's talking to these two different groups, and here's what they believe. The liberty lovers. In the first century Roman Empire, it was really common to hear the phrase, Caesar is Lord. That, would be, that was the phrase that everybody said, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Even the Roman coins had the idea that Caesar was divine on them. It was everywhere. Caesar was divine. And so when Christians, when we, you know how we say Jesus is Lord often? In fact, even at the end, verse 14 of our text for today, we talk about Jesus is Lord. That was a politically subversive thing to say. You're saying, no, Caesar's not God, Caesar's not king. Jesus is our Lord. He, he's top. You all follow me on that? And so Christians would often say, Jesus is Lord, but then the, we'll call them the liberty lovers. What they used to do is they used to say, since Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, we don't have to obey anything the government tells us to do. No seatbelts, no stoplights, no stop signs. You know, we don't, have to do, we don't have to do any of the stuff that we find inconvenient because Jesus is Lord, so we don't really have to listen to governing authorities. Um, you can kind of think about this like maybe, maybe a hippie commune, at least what I picture because I'm obviously too young to know about that era. You guys can tell me stories later. Um, but, but there's this idea of, like, we don't have to listen to the government because God is in control. You know, my kids try this on me too, right? Sometimes I go to discipline them, and they're like, well, mommy says it's okay. And it's like, well, mommy doesn't trump dad in the way that we're, you know, talking about authority here. That's, that's not how our household works. We're both your authority. So, so, again, one of the groups that Paul's talking to, they're anti-establishment, but they're peaceful. And the other group that Paul's talking to, we'll call the second group, freedom fighters. There was also growing discontent with the government in first century Roman Empire. Some Jews continually like, opposed the spread of a foreign culture in their land. They had all this influence from other cultures, and the, and the Jews were like, we're not having that. We don't want anything to do with this. They were also upset because Roman taxes were something they had to pay to an oppressive foreign government in their minds. In fact, there ended up being a Jewish tax revolt a few years after Paul wrote this letter that led to the first Jewish-Roman war, and the whole temple was torn down, it was a big deal. And a lot of the Jewish people were, were outraged at the attempt because it was an attempt to put statues of the Roman Empire inside Jewish synagogues, and that was outrageous to them. And so you had some Christians that were aligning themselves with, with radical Jewish members and saying, well, Jesus is Lord, therefore we have to fight back violently against our oppressors. You all hear what I'm saying? And Paul is talking to both groups when he writes this section of Romans. A key tenet of Christianity, and we preach about this every time we talk about Palm Sunday, is that Jesus didn't come in his first coming to overthrow governments and establish another theocracy. He didn't come in riding on a war horse to Jerusalem. He came in riding on a donkey. And so the call to be a Christian is not to be a political revolutionary in order to establish a purely Christian kingdom or domain. Now, the second time Jesus comes, that's out the window, right? Like when he comes riding on that war horse, everything changes. Jesus' second coming. But for now, Christians are called to live in the context that God has placed us. You all follow me when I say that? Okay. So, again, Paul is talking to two groups. They're both against following Roman law, but Paul tells them to be subject 
to governing authorities, and he gives them two reasons why. The first reason is governing authorities are instituted by God. The second reason is they are for your good and also, you know, will work against you if you go against them. Now, I have, I have, I have not been in the habit of watching the news recently, and I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that I'm very cynical. And whenever I turn on any news station, I feel like it's, on any, any, hear me say this, any news station, I feel like it's propaganda, propagandized a lot. And I know a lot of you are shaking your heads because you feel kind of the same way. Um, but I have seen enough of the news to know that there are places where cities are on fire. I mean, they just are. Um, public works are being defaced or torn down. That's been going on for several months. Businesses are being looted. Again, do not hear me through a political lens. I'm stating things that we can all see. Bystanders are being assaulted, certainly verbally and sometimes physically. There's a movement to defund the police. And for some people, that movement means, no, look, we're just looking to out reallocate resources to different social places that the money can do more good in their minds, right? That's one group. And the other group is saying, no, we're looking to get rid of police and abolish police forces. You all, you're all familiar with this, right? You probably know more about all this stuff than I do. Amen? You guys, you guys following me? I just went Baptist for a second. All right. Um, and, and here's the thing. There's a popular narrative that, that police escalate the violence and that cities would be safer without them. Anybody hear this? They're safer without the police. But, but I want you to hear this. I, I'm not speaking from a political point of view. What Scripture says and, and look at me at verse 3 and 4, is that is not the case. Look at, look at me at verses 3 and 4, it's in your bulletin. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What Paul is saying is likely common sense to most of us, but it bears preaching about. The role of governing authorities, the role of government as it's supposed to be established, is that it's to provide a defense against lawlessness. It's to provide a defense, a common defense against lawlessness. Just look at our Constitution. Right, I'm going to read part of the Constitution for you. Brief. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. What's the purpose that I just read to you very quickly? Mutual protection, right? Promoting defense, um, ensuring domestic tranquility. These purposes of government, by the way, aren't unique to the United States, but are supposed to be the function of every governing authority. We're all on the same page here? Do we all at least understand what I'm talking about? Okay. The role of government is to provide recourse for justice and a mechanism for enforcement. You know, again, I always talk about my kids because that's 90% of my life. I have two kids, right, ages two and four. We just had the four-year-old's birthday party yesterday. And when they can't get along, I give them a chance to work it out. But if they can't, it's my role to step in to provide impartial judgment to the best of my ability. I'm a human, to the best of my ability. And the only reason it works is because I am bigger than them. Right? You know, if my kids were, you know, 240 and 6'3 and I step in, 
you know, and I'm like, now, now, boys, stop punching. You know, like, I'm going to get flattened. But that's the, that's the idea of governing authorities. Well, what happens when governing authority is removed? What happens when the sword that's being talked about in Romans 13.4 gets taken out of the hands of governing authority? Can't people just police themselves? I mean, have you had siblings? Have you been around people? Like, like that's not… People, you know, one of the things that's a central tenet to Christianity is that, is that people aren't basically good. I would, you know, we talked about this a few months ago. I would argue that the average person, myself included, is probably just a moderately bad person. And by that, I just mean I'm, you know, like we're self-focused, we put our interests above others, and we can justify any action to ourselves that puts us ahead of somebody else. You all hear me when I say that? So what happens when you move governing authority? Well, we've seen it. When, and I'm not just talking about recently, I mean historically we've seen it. A lack of government authority allows for people to have, allows for private vengeance to rule the day, Hatfield and McCoy style, right? You hit me, I'm going to hit you back twice as hard. And then you're coming at me four times as hard. Because there's no rules. And that, that private vengeance can either be from an individual or it can be from a mob. And it's typically the person who's most prone to extreme violence that sets the tone for everyone. Have you seen that? I've seen it in high school, man. And if you know your history, I want you to think for a second about the French Revolution and the resulting reign of terror. You all familiar with what happened there? Governing authority was removed, and I'm going to totally mispronounce um, Barrère and Robespierre's names because I haven't taken French in like 15 years. Um, but I want you to listen to their quotes about what happened when governing authority was removed in the French Revolution and the reign of terror began. This is what they said. These were the instigators. They said, let's make terror the order of the day. And they also said, terror is nothing more than speedy, severe, and inflexible justice. It is thus an emanation of virtue. Here's where they're coming from. Here's their worldview. We have a goal, we have an aim, and our end justifies the means. That's what it boils down to. The end result of what we're aiming for justifies whatever means we're using to attain those. And what they did is they created the ironic Committee of Public Safety that oversaw the terror, and they also set up the Revolutionary Tribunal to deal with political dissidents. It's right there. It's happened before. It happens continually through human history. And it wasn't pretty. But here's the problem with anarchy. Anarchy leads to private and corporate vengeance, and then it leads to warlords. All it does is replace the tyranny of the officially powerful with the unofficially powerful. You all know this, right? This isn't news to you. The reason I'm telling you this is because I'm trying to give you a biblical perspective on what's going on. And if you have an issue with it, my email is fathercrodriguez at trinity... No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to have a discussion with you. Um, so again, we've seen this before, what happens. When there's an end of the presence of lawful governing authority, there's no end to how bad things can get. And when you destabilize the governing authorities, it's the most vulnerable in the population who are most put at risk. You know that too, right? If police aren't coming to a neighborhood anymore, who's, who's at the most risk? Who's the most vulnerable then? You know, Governments are run by people, though, and they're not perfect, are they? They're not perfect. In fact, some are brutally oppressive. 
Seven years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, Nero began persecuting Christians. And if you know anything about Nero, he was as sadistic as they come. He blamed Christians for setting fire to Rome. He rounded rounded us up and horrifically put us to death for Roman amusement. Even before Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, though, he had experienced the tyranny of Rome. He's not unfamiliar with how bad governments can be. In fact, Paul was later put to death by the Roman government. You all hear what I'm saying? He's not He's not naive. Which brings us to our second point. God is sovereign, and his laws are higher than any government. In our passage, the Greek word here, do you see that submit to governing authorities for be subject to? It's the Greek word hupotasso, which also means, it means specifically submit. It is not hupakuo, which means obey. We're going to make a distinction here, okay, between submission and obedience. This is an important distinction because as we're called to submit to government, so far as it not dire- does not directly contradict God's commands. He's the higher authority, right? We obey God, we submit to government. Y'all follow me on that distinction? We obey God, we submit to government as long as it does not cross God's commands. And there are plenty of examples in the Bible of people practicing civil disobedience. In the book of Daniel, All the Babylonians are gathered together. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar had made this like 60-foot statue of gold, and he's like, everybody come worship this statue. And there were three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that said, we're not doing that. We're not going to worship anybody but God. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay, well, we're going to throw you into this fiery furnace that's so hot that it burns up the guards that are next to it. So in you go. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, you know what? Our God is sovereign. Our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship. And so we got, they got thrown into the furnace. Now, God saved them, which is miraculous, but he doesn't always do that. Daniel. Daniel the lion's den. You all heard this story when you're young. I think we're talking about with the preschoolers too. Daniel the lion's den. They, they say 30 days can't pray to anybody but the king. Daniel says, well, I'm going to pray to God because that's my first authority. That's my first allegiance. That's where my heart is. So Daniel goes and prays, and what happens to him? He gets thrown in the lion's den, right? Now, again, he's saved. Doesn't always happen. Peter and Paul, the, Paul who wrote this, right, submit to authorities, and Peter who wrote the other section on submitting to authorities later in Scripture, both these guys, they're arrested for preaching the gospel in Acts 5. They're commanded, do not do it again. And you know what their response is to that? We will obey God rather than men, and they're beaten. Do you hear what I'm saying? If there's a tyrannical government, there is, there's license in the Bible to practice civil disobedience. In fact, there's a proud history of Christian civil be- disobedience. Martin Luther King Jr. has been quoted a lot recently in response to this, by both sides of the aisle, some justifying, trying to justify violence, and some saying, no, protest, protesting is fine. In fact, you know, go for it. However, violence, not okay. And I'm going to quote him, and and this quote's been floating around for a long time. He says, and this is, by the way, an incredibly Christian view of this, incredibly biblical view. He says, there are just laws and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine, St. Augustine, that an unjust law is no law at all. One who breaks an unjust law must do it openly, lovingly, I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and willingly accepts the penalty 
By staying in jail to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the very highest respect for the law. What do Christians do in the face of a tyrannical government? We have, we have examples, biblical authority for acting. It's a, this, you know, that was a profoundly Christian response to injustice. It's practice it openly, do it lovingly, and be willing to accept the consequences of it. But there is no allowance for Christians to use violence, destruction, or, co- or coercion against our fellow citizens to achieve our ends. We don't do that. Would you all agree with that? Do you all hear what I'm saying? You know, I'm sure you've seen the news story of the woman who was accosted as she was just sitting outside of that restaurant. You all seen this one? She's sitting outside a restaurant. There's a whole mob of people surrounding her demanding that she, um, you know, raise her arm and, and chant the accepted slogan, which, by the way, is what the brown shirts did for the Nazi party, but I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, and I'm sure, and, and you know, no matter what side of the political aisle you are on, such tactics should be met with full-throated Christian disapproval. That's not how we do things. Christians are not people that believe that the ends justify the means. We are those who God has given us the means by which to live, and we trust Him with the end result. That's our whole lives, by the way. God, you have told us to live in this manner, and I, I have to let you handle what comes next. Which brings us to our third and final point, and I'll be brief. God is sovereign, and in him do we place our hope. This is a big one for us. There are so many people in our culture looking for God in all the wrong places. You've seen this whole trend of celebrities and politicians being elevated and then brought down when something in their Twitter feed from 15 years ago pops up, and they get you know, completely thrown out and discarded. You all see, that, see how this works? You know, what people are doing is, you know this, they're looking for the Messiah, they're looking for a perfect Savior, and anybody that's not sinless gets discarded, right? That's how that works. Everybody's looking for Jesus, they just don't realize it. And you know, political parties are taking the role of God. Political parties have become new religions, and this is how you know that. If you identify with a political party, you say you know, you're registered with it as a Democrat or Republican, but you have a view that's contrary to your party's platform, you are branded a heretic. You're a heretic. If you are part of a political party and you switch, you're an apostate. And that's worse than not being, affiliated. you know, that's worse than just being a Democrat or Republican in the first place. Y'all hear what I'm saying when, when, I, when I'm saying this stuff? They've been elevated to, to, to way higher positions than they need to be. So, what we need to understand is that God is sovereign and that we can trust him with the result and that ultimately we're Christians first. We need to be above the fray. Our Messiah is Jesus Christ and our religion is Christianity under the sovereign God. This does not mean that we politically disengage. Christians have done tremendous good through civic engagement. Jeremiah 29, 7 says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We are called to be politically engaged in our culture, right? It's not two kingdoms. It's not two kingdoms. We're called to be engaged. And Christians, this is a short list, and it's not my list, um, of of the things that Christians have done politically that have changed the world. You ready? I'm going to be, again, I'm going on, so I'm going to try to wrap this up. Here we go. Christians have outlawed the killing of unwanted children, child abandonment, and abortion in the Roman Empire in AD 374. Christians led the charge to outlaw gladiatorial contests in AD 404. 
Christians outlawed the branding of criminal faces in AD 315. Christians instituted prison reforms in Rome in AD 361. Christians stopped human sacrifice among the Irish, Prussians, Lithuanians, Aztecs, and Mayans. We outlawed pedophilia. We outlawed polygamy. We prohibited, prohibited the burning of widows alive in India in 1829. Women were still be, widows were still being burned alive in India. India. Christians had something to say about that. We outlawed the binding of women's feet in China in 1912, initiated public schools in Germany in the 16th century, advocated education to all children in European countries. We often sought the abolition of slavery in Rome, Ireland, most of Europe, and the United States. In fact, in the 1830s, nearly two-thirds of the people that were supporting the abolition of slavery could be traced directly to a clergy person or their vestry. That's a big deal. So again, we engage because we don't believe in two kingdoms, but we do so as Christians, following Christian principles and Christian beliefs. But ultimately, we're citizens of heaven. We are sons and daughters of the sovereign God, and we can rest in the fact that God wins. I know, like, I know things are crazy, but God wins. And we can take a deep breath and have a sigh of relief that the King of kings and Lords of lords comes out on top in the end. I'm not saying elections don't matter, and I'm certainly not going to advocate for, for, uh, for a specific political party from the pulpit. We don't do that. But we do say it is important for us to live our Christian faith in every sphere of life and to trust God with the result. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have placed a tremendous call before us. As a people, you have guided through your word, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, through the historic church. God, I pray that we would have the confidence in you that we're able to submit to governing authorities and have the courage to disobey only when it directly contradicts your laws. I thank you that we can rest, that we can rest and trust in you for the end result. It's your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.